0: This is the Speaker for the Living podcast. Exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, welcome to Speaker for the Living. I'm Seth Dare. I'm here with JJ Jenflone and we're going to talk about the State Department within the Trump administration and the State Department in general. Hey, JJ. Mm-hmm.
1: Hey, Seth. How how are you doing? How's life?
0: I'm doing okay.
1: This is, okay is a good statement to make when we're going to be using a lot in this particular podcast. We're going to be referencing directly to a lot of tweets from the current president of the United States, Mr. Donald Trump. So, okay is a good baseline to begin with. So, Seth, Mm -hmm. why should I care about the State Department if I care about human trafficking?
0: Well, might be good to talk about what the State Department is. The State Department is largely our Foreign Relations Department. The Secretary of State is essentially our chief diplomat, although if you look at People like uh, Kissinger and others, it's clear that they are more than that, that there's a there's strategy, there's sometimes some toughness, but they are not the military. So they're not going to do what the the DOD does, although they might reference it, but they're going to negotiate. And there's a lot of soft power involved. Soft power is a perfect example is the Peace Corps. So we go and we send our... Minions, Uh, we've had friends who've done the Peace Corps and uh, they are a form of ambassador to say, hey, we're here to help, we're here to understand, learn the language, give some time and hopefully some people can come away with a better understanding or representation of the United States.
1: It's also kind of a spreading of sort of Western style or more specifically US style norms. Even though the Peace Corps is really good about not coming in and being sort of paternalistic mm-hmm. in its policies, it's the idea that having young men and women who are highly educated, who are volunteering their time, coming into these normally like quite rural or sort of impoverished areas, that then these people who are, who are, members of the peace corps are spreading not only this image of americans as someone to be trusted and someone who's helpful but the ways in which they're helpful so pushing for small business pushing for women's health pushing for certain sort of basic human rights that sort of thing which is primarily viewed as something these sort of like just general groups of rights as something that is fundamentally american if you will
0: Mm mm-hmm And a very key part of that is the Foreign Service, the consulars, in other words, the people at embassies, the people that collect data on human trafficking for the TIP report, people that do visa interviews and help Americans abroad when they're in another country. So it very much is our representation in the world.
1: And that... Soft power, I think, cannot be discounted in terms of how important it is. Uh, Soft power is that which is sort of the persuasive end to things, and soft power gets things done. When you're taking hard power, so sort of military interventions, really strict legal sanctions, things like that, that can have, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, a chilling effect, but it can also have just a very firm response so hard power between two governments is normally viewed as an aggressive or sort of a violent act whereas soft power is much more insidious it slowly changes opinion of not just the group but also just sort of this idea of social expectation or social desires within another country so soft power is generally considered to be what you want to use first and as Seth has pointed out, what the, what the State Department does is sort of controls that first major influence of, of soft and hard power.
0: Now, the new administration went through a few different possible candidates, uh, such as Rudy Giuliani, who, in my opinion, was not quite uh, the diplomat type. Uh, we ended up going with Rex Tillerson, who's from ExxonMobil. You know, he's a big business person in oil, and he has connections with Russia. But I also feel like he can probably have a nuanced diplomatic conversation in a room having been a CEO. What he'll actually do in oversight of the State Department is not yet clear.
1: Also in this is, I don't think we can discount at all the sort of thing that is, or the person that is Donald Trump, or shall we say, like the thing that is the rhetoric that surrounds Donald Trump and the State Department together in group. And mixed in with that is a lot of sort of, not just the public statements put out by the White House press secretary or that are put out in interviews, but sort of, again, this sort of soft power thing, the, the tweets that are coming out of both the State Department and at the real Donald Trump.
0: And one of my concerns, and not just me, like, JJ and I went to Corbell. We took some human rights classes. We were part of the Human Trafficking Center, studying the current order. And we value soft power. We value what the U.S. does in the world despite the faults of the United States. Yes. And Donald Trump's rhetoric has done at least two things worldwide and you know we've heard this from people that are abroad from people Mm -hmm. who've worked in the state department that you have some people who are very concerned and you have some people who really are taking us less seriously
1: well they're taking it as as seriously as i think it's warranted to be taken there people are really really concerned and i think The inclination is when it's something like this coming from the US that's viewed again as more of a soft power institution that you don't need to be quite so worried about it. But the reality is, is that the US as a hegemonic power holds this sort of unique position in the world where US policy not only sets the tone for world policy but the US is viewed as sort of this ideal country that either refugees or Mm -hmm. asylum seekers are encouraged to flock to or view to flock to, but because it's also a trend maker, I think it's this very big fear that if the US makes a policy that comes across as anti-immigrant or anti-refugee or anti, you know, a particular religious group, anything to that end, I think then the fear is from people the world over that other countries will then follow suit. And this doesn't have to be sort of a linear following suit. I, I think we're seeing a, a rise across the globe of sort of nationalism and, and the tightening and the closing of borders and sort of the focus of inward looking on a state level, whether you're going to focus on Brexit or sort of the the upcoming election in France, things of, things of that nature. But I think we're seeing as a result of like longstanding economic downturn, uh, increasing Fear of attack via from international domestic forces, all of those things sort of combine typically into people kind of turning inward. But I think then the fear is that if the US turns inward as well, then what has up to now been sort of a suggested trend then becomes like an embedded thing.
0: Well, and it is on the table based on s- drafts that are out there that we pull. In- a lot of international funding for organizations that we look at treaties to pull out of and as well as recent things relating to refugees and relating to uh, reciprocal visa programs and and all of these things and if we start doing that then that's the non-economic version of beggar thy neighbor they'll say okay you're going to make it harder we're going to make it harder we're going to pull out of this treaty we're going to oppress our people because we want to anyway, or you're not serious about human trafficking in your supply chain, so why should we care? And that's going to make it very difficult for well-meaning people in the State Department. And it's very concerning for people like us who are in anti-human trafficking that the U.S. is a force, the TIP report does have influence. And it, and if the U.S. loses a lot of soft power legitimacy, it's going to be very difficult for the U.S. to seriously influence with soft power. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that the best word there, honestly, is influence, just to consider the influence of policy or the influence of statements coming out of the current
0: administration. Do you have any statements in mind?
1: Oh, do I? I am going to be reading the, the three tweets that sort of work together that all came out on the fourth, which is, and I quote, when a country is no longer able to say who can and who cannot come in and out, especially for reasons of safety and security, big trouble. Interesting that certain Middle Eastern countries agree with the ban. They know if certain people are allowed in, it's death and destruction. And the opinion of this so-called judge, which essentially takes law enforcement away from our country, is ridiculous and will be overturned. The problem I have with these three tweets is that there's a nugget of reasonableness in them. A country certainly should have the ability of self-determination to say who can and cannot come within their borders. Certainly, people are going to have individualized opinions about what is appropriate in terms of letting people in and out and what sort of the governing policies whether they're moral or ethical or even legal are but I, I do agree a country should be able to say who can and cannot come in and out but then when we get into especially for reasons of safety and security dash big trouble i have a problem with that because it's really not it's really not clear to me what those reasons of safety and security are i don't think that those have been adequately articulated is why these particular countries are such a danger, and why this limiting, especially when this limiting contains people who are green card holders, people who have already been granted refugee status, and people who have done things like serve as translators for our armed forces in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. That, to me, I'm not sure what the safety concern there is. Then that we're jumping to that certain Middle Eastern countries agree with the ban. They know if certain people are allowed, in, it's death and destruction. This latter part, the death and destruction bit, I think goes immediately into what you and I had talked about in the podcast immediately previous to this, which is when you are saying that certain people, and you're not articulating what those certain people are, that they mean death and destruction, it's... Very, very dangerous in terms of people who need protection and support are not going to be granted that protection and support because they're viewed as this dangerous other. They're a boogeyman. And then to say that the opinion of the so-called judge eh, he is a judge, it's not so-called, takes law enforcement away from our country is ridiculous and will be overturned, which sort of posits that people who are against this argument are not members of our country or are working against the values of our country so that there there's a country and only certain people can belong to it will be overturned sort of sets this idea that well of course this law is going to be overturned because i've said so and what i've said based on statements in the past is sort of this belief again this othering that there's a group of people coming into the country who are dangerous and frightening And we, the easiest way to protect ourselves is to block them.
0: Well, and I have to say, as people keep saying, it's only because we need to keep the worst ones out or it's only about radical Islam. That's just bull. This is a thing where we're looking at people as possible threats and where there's also a number of people who look at the Islam religion and say it's all about being a threat, and shir- Sharia law, and so on. This is a really dangerous ground, so maybe in that way I'll agree with Trump. It is dangerous, but not for the reason that you say. Mm-hmm. And it's a dangerous type of attitude when you, when you look at groups of people this way. It's toxic to society in general. You know, we don't have to go to the worst examples in order for this to have negative consequences. Mm-hmm. And also something else that it's good to restate: these Middle Eastern countries that don't take in refugees. Yes, that is because Arab countries have not signed many treaties, including the refugee treaties. Therefore, they don't have the obligation, nor is it really part of what they do to be that integrated into the international order. So it's not like they're making a change in policy and deciding, oh, we're just not going to accept refugees now.
1: And I think what is important there that maybe you could say a little bit more in detail on Seth is what what are the dangers of this?
0: There's a lot of decisions the United States has made for the purpose of security. So going in it's hard to know whether a certain action like Libya is Libya better or worse off after our intervention. Really it's impossible to know. You don't you don't know the counterfactual as uh one of our professors loves to say. <laughs> but uh Syria there there's something to be said about not getting over-involved in situations like Iraq where then we had to build it back up and try to set up new government, and uh, there's lots about that that didn't go well. But by not getting involved in Syria in a more concrete way, whatever that way would be, and there's no guarantee it would be better, but let's say we would have done something and helped Syria stabilize. Well, then you perhaps don't have as many refugees or you don't have as much failing around there. When states fail, there's disruption in their own countries, which lead to things like refugees and failing or fragile states are often the ones that do have refugees and have religious persecution and have political persecution. They go hand in hand which is also part of the problem of only wanting to accept refugees from stable countries. That stable countries don't produce as many refugees. And when things start falling apart and cascading, and then people leave, and then countries are unstable, that's where you can have dangerous leaders, that's where you can have destruction. That hurts trade, it hurts nearby security, and it becomes a stability issue within a region as a whole. So we can't just walk away from these things as a big world power and say, "Well, that's their problem over there." When there is this much disruption, people have to make choices. If you if you look in uh, parts of Africa, Sierra Leone, for instance, where people joined as child or youth soldiers because their state failed and there really wasn't a whole lot of choice. It was better to be a soldier with a gun than not. And when you have ISIS and other groups who are marauding throughout a country, people have to make choices. And They have their army of social media warriors and people who are recruiting. And the less stability out there, the more people who are vulnerable for recruitment or or to radicalization or to false narratives. And also, the more people that are vulnerable to human trafficking because people are trying to survive and they'll be forced into making choices. And in terms of ISIS, you have the blatant human trafficking where... They will literally take people as slaves for labor and for sex. But then there's people who are escaping who are then vulnerable to human trafficking as they try to find someplace without conflict or to find a better life where they can simply have a job.
1: Well, and I think that's the part that can't be sort of understated is this idea that there is a connection between organized crime and human trafficking and Mm -hmm. beyond organized crime there is a connection to terrorism and human trafficking because human trafficking is not a formal economy right you're not declaring money that you've made from the selling of people on your taxes in any sort of sense unless you're in mauritania it might be a different thing. but in terms of the global wide world you're not that's extra money that goes unnoticed. So, of course, you're going to have criminal criminal organizations, organized crime, participating in human trafficking, whether that's sex trafficking, labor trafficking, or some mix between the two. You're most certainly also going to have terrorist organizations participating in this. As Seth just mentioned, um, one of the things that comes out all the time with ISIS is this idea of stealing women to be brides or enforce sex work for soldiers. But you also have the stealing of children and using them as as labor, using them as sort of vehicles for suicide bombing, but also just stealing them and then using them for indoctrination to be used as soldiers later or actively as soldiers now. Child soldiering is considered to be human trafficking because there's not an aspect of consent in there. Then you also have that terrorist organizations may use people who are being trafficked or their labor in a way to fund their processes. Mm -hmm. So you actually have terrorist organizations running or receiving the proceeds from factories that are staffed entirely with human trafficking victims because then that money, which is just pure net profit, can be used to benefit their cause, whatever sort of cause radical it might be. You also then have the buying and selling of people to other groups for profit or for exchange. So what we do see, um, or what we did see, rather, in sort of the the Myanmar-Burma thing was the selling of typically women in exchange for weapons or in exchange for access to food or particular roadways that were deemed important. So you do have this trade in people, that happens in these situations. So it's not just that an area full of radicals is dangerous to the local population because of increased violence, increased threats to life and property, economic downturn, that sort of thing. It's also physically dangerous in terms of you may be taken and used, and then viewed as one of these combatants when in fact you're not there by choice.
0: Well, and when making choices with the State Department and with the military and our hard and soft power, there's a lot of factors that need to be weighed in stability and in how we want to convey ourselves to the world and and even how we want to uh, try to battle the ideology of ISIS. And you don't battle it by doing a direct you're wrong type tactic State Department's been evolving in how they fight these ideologies and uh, you know, I was part of one of those with countering violent extremism and uh, the peer-to-peer project where we came up with prototypes to try to have counter narratives and, and uh, try to get people to understand the issues and the signs relating to all that as part of that toolbox taking in refugees is one way to do that we are trying to tell the world we believe in human rights, we will not accept certain behavior, that how you treat people, ISIS, isn't okay. And my take on something like this is, no, we don't have to take in a million refugees or something like, like that because there are people displaced in a country. But as part of the, part of the package, taking in some people spending money on them rather than spending it on a military action when we're fighting an ideology that has a narrative is important. It is money I would argue that is well spent. And that that also applies to our trafficking initiatives abroad that we, we are saying something about what is acceptable and what is humane and what is good.
1: And it has a domino effect throughout the regions where we're doing this. People communicate with each other. And so when you have people who are saved or prevented from entering into slavery, that's a net benefit for the entire community. There are ripple effects there that are huge.
0: Part of why the U.S. has been a part of helping countries stabilize and encouraging exporting and everything is because we need markets and well, there are businesses who love not having many regulations because it helps them profit and gives us potentially cheaper products, market theory and everything says that we want people to be productive. We want countries to be stable. And so we want, for there to be growth, people to be working, people to be contributing to society. and human trafficking ultimately does not lead to real growth no not at all we of course care more about it from the humane side and the human rights side but we don't only look at it that way and so with the trafficking in persons report within the JTIP office and as I've been told a few times The uh, tip office is so important and central that it's not in the Hart Senate building or the nearby uh, building. It's across the street in rented space, in space that is arguably not sufficient for what they do. We're glad to have a tip office. We think there is money put toward it, and there's some good things. But on the other hand, in the hierarchy of space, it's not as high as many other things and that alone communicates something and unfortunately that's not new it's always been that way there, there is hope to expand what the tip office does to make it more prominent and the End Modern Slavery Initiative Act by having a foundation there are people who want to do and see more And Mm -hmm. so we can hope for that. We're not yet sure what to hope for with a Tillerson-led State Department, but we'll be talking about some other things that... uh,
1: Impact this. And if this is something you care about, as always, write to your local representatives that you want to see, not just the the Trafficking in Persons Office expand, but that you're interested in local initiatives uh, that your local government may have uh, so both lo- go to your state and to federal representatives and contact them and be like, this is a thing that I care about. Uh, this is a thing that I view as important. And I would like to see the Trafficking in Persons Office expanded or at the very least supported more. And then on the state and federal level, this is a thing that I care about. I care about people. I care about people in trafficking. I care about migrants, et cetera, whatever your particular cause that you feel firmly attached to is, and that you would like to see it continue to get support.
0: And as our government is paying attention to labor regulations and regulations in general, as there are things with visas that are being changed and and looked at, and as we're looking at immigration, all of these things affect human trafficking. So if you could just encourage your uh, senators and congressmen and everyone else in uh in washington to pay attention to issues of human trafficking and forced labor in the supply chain and make sure that as they make these changes that there aren't negative effects on laborers worldwide that would be great anything else jj
1: no that's that's about it uh stay tuned for our next uh podcast which will be coming up pretty soon where we continue to talk about The new Trump administration and what that means for human trafficking and human trafficking related issues in the U.S. and abroad. We'll be bringing you information as fast as we can get it.
0: Okay, until next time. Bye, guys. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.